In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And Jesus went up into the mountain, and with him he took Peter and James and John, for he went to pray. It's a very strange event, you know. The transfiguration of our Lord is one of those mysterious things which from time to time happen through the life of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. But of course the question always is, how on earth do you describe that which is essentially indescribable? You can't. There aren't the words. There aren't the concepts. If we have met those who are remembering the times that they met, those who are dear to them, who became their life partners, we remember phrases like, I was walking on air. Another one, my legs turned to jelly. Another one, for me, the world suddenly stopped turning. And I've heard when there was a particularly electrifying speaker that speaker, he was on fire. He was literally on fire. And so it is that when faced with an event which we can't describe, because there aren't the words, because there aren't the almost the human concepts to be able to reconstruct, so we turn to symbols or pictures to try and portray what has happened. This is an amazing account, and here we've got St. Luke's account of the Transfiguration. But whichever way you slice it or dice it, it's a very strange event. So, fine, what's it all about? What's actually going on here in the Transfiguration of our Lord? First thing to do is to try and put this into a time context. Now, you and I know that the Gospels are not biographies, they're not histories, they're not events which proceed one after the other, they are interpretations, they are, in the case of John, theologies, um, they are, in the case of Mark, collections of sayings which come from the preaching of Peter, a set of pericope. They are not timelines, and yet if we very carefully put stuff together, we can somehow put together um, some sort of timeline to see what happened and when. Traditionally understood, the transfiguration comes not long before Jesus and the others leave to go up to Jerusalem for the last time. So here we have Christ who is preparing the others, preparing them, especially Peter and James and John, for all that is going to happen, both to him and to them. Peter and James and John are clearly at the front of his mind as far as leadership is concerned. And all three of the synoptic Gospels say that it was this small group who were there with Jesus on the mountain, the mountain of transfiguration. So, time context. Yes, right at the very end of his Galilean ministry, before he goes up to Jerusalem for the last time. But of course, the other big question over which there is so much argument is where did it actually happen? 
what is the location of the transfiguration. The Franciscan order, and I do hope that there are no Franciscan historians present here. Anybody? Um, no? Good. Hard luck if so. Because, do you see, the Franciscans have built their tremendous church, the Church of the Transfiguration, on the top of Mount Tabor. But this is to the west of the Jordan Valley, and it's down towards Nain and Esdrulam. And in any case, according to the historians, at the time, Tabor was a large mountaintop Roman camp with concentric defensive circles around it. So it would have been very difficult for the apostles to be there for the transfiguration. In fact, the location of the apostles and of Christ, according to the synoptic gospelers, is actually up in the area to the north of the Sea of Galilee and well north to the little city of Capernaum, Capernaum, where they were living and where Jesus and his mother were living. So the more modern and I think far more likely location of the Transfiguration is in fact in Mount Hermon, wonderful awe-inspiring Mount Hermon, the great 9,000-foot range with its three peaks which divide Israel from Syria, and it's up there on Israel's far northeastern border. Mount Hermon is a strange place. It's an awe-inspiring place. You go up to Caesarea Philippi or to the place of Banyas, where the infant Jordan tumbles and rushes out of a great hill uh, cavern in the hillside, and it really captures the imagination. But when you're down in Tiberias, the Roman city, now of course a holiday resort, down on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, if you're up the hill a bit, you can look over and you can see, you can see Mount Hermon lowering there down over northern Israel and over the lake. And unless it's been a very hard summer, you can even see snow on the peaks right the way through the year. This alone gives us an idea, for we have the account of Jesus, the whiteness, the shining whiteness of his robes, as the, old, uh, as the old translation of the Bible says, so as no fuller on earth could make them, for they are there on Mount Hermon at the snow line. Now, we, we've talked about symbolism. We've talked about the sort of traditional ways in which we express that which is inexpressible or explain that which is inexplainable, unexplainable. But also this event is crowded out with ancient Hebrew symbolism. To start off with, we've got the mountain. This is one of the greatest mountains in the whole of that part of the east, 9,000 foot of it, staggeringly wonderful, with snow for most of the year. And of course the mountain was the place where God dwelt in Jewish thought. It was to the mountain that Moses went 
and found his call in the burning bush. It was on the mountain that Moses then received the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai. It was up in the hilly, mountainous wastes of the wilderness that the great prophets, well, they call them minor prophets, but not really, and prophets like Amos, the herdsman of Tekoa, he was up, he f felt his call, he knew his call, up in the mountains of the wilderness. And of course, ultimately, it is in Jerusalem on Mount Zion that the, the temple of God and the Holy of Holies is set. So the mountains are, in Jewish thought, in the Jewish mind, highly significant. Then, of course, comes the cloud. And if we read the account in our Old Testament lesson for today, we hear about Moses and the cloud. The cloud represents the unknowability of God, the veiled presence of God, for Moses had to wear a veil because his face was shining white. And of course, here, in this event of the transfiguration, the cloud comes down and we have the appearance of Moses and Elijah and Christ is shining, shining brightly. This is a theophany. It's a wonderful and a traditional way of understanding the time when God's will impacts on human life. And here, both visually and orally, God makes his presence felt. Theophany, yeah, from theophania, or phania, the showing forth of God. In a way, of course, you've also got it in other seasons. Um, but here, theophania, theophania, the showing forth of God, and the moment when, however briefly, the voice comes from heaven, and we know that heaven and earth have touched. It's a wonderful and a strange, strange event. And they're stunned. And Luke tells us that Peter doesn't know what he's saying. Peter blurts out, Lord, it is good that we are here. Shall we make, and of course you can almost see Peter, dear old Peter, who, as my theological college tutor always said, only ever opened his mouth in order to change feet. But Peter was extraordinary. And Peter here is totally captivated. Peter blurts out these words, Lord, it is good to be here. Shall we build three tents? Three dwellings, three booths, translations different. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And Luke says he didn't know what he was saying. And Jesus has to calm him down. The effect is profound. If we look at some of the icons of the transfiguration, particularly the amazing 16th and 15th century Novgorod icons from the great Novgorod school in Russia, we see at the transfiguration that uh, John is lying on his face, trying to hide his face into a crack in the hill. He's the wrong way down, his feet towards the mandola and towards Christ and the presence of God, and he's just trying to get down 
and is absolutely prostrate. Peter never forgot the impact of it, and in his second epistle general, 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 18, Peter speaks of this event with absolute awe. For it is the moment when heaven and earth have touched, when they see the presence of God in the shining and in the cloud, and when they hear the presence of God in those words, this is my son, my beloved, listen to him. And so, when all is over, when the shining has gone, when the figures of Moses and Elijah have disappeared, they go off down the mountain to join the others, probably at Caesarea Philippi, and then on down to their homes in Kapha, Naum, Capernaum, perhaps 16, 17 miles away, but down, down into the Jordan Valley. And together they continue with the work to be done, the work of teaching and the work of healing, though for a very short time. For Jesus then goes up to Jerusalem for the last time. But for now the purpose of the transfiguration is to encourage, to strengthen. And so the apostles are buoyed up for the events to come and for all that was to happen on the hill of Calvary within such a short time. But above all, for what was to happen three days after Jesus' death on Calvary, when he comes into the most glorious life of his Father's kingdom. So when later they all set off together again, along the road that was to go up to Jerusalem, there was sadness. Yes, there was encouragement, for they were buoyed up, but there was sadness because it was to a future that was both uncertain and very, very dangerous, and they knew it. Historically, of them all, it was only John who, according to tradition, young John, who was probably no more than 15, according to the scholars, it was only him who was to see old age, and that was to be far, far away up in Ephesus, where he, building on the work of Paul, and Paul building on his work, where the new church at Ephesus was founded. John, for John, it was the trial of old age. But for the others, it was the martyr's crown. But the whole point was that that day up on Mount Hermon, especially Peter and James and John, are granted a glimpse into the mind of God. And having seen into the mind of God, go they must, and go they did. And where they go and where they have gone, it's now up to you and me to follow on. Amen. <laughs>